From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life, Healthy Living in the Wasatch. I'm Lynn Ware Peak here with David Windsor. This morning, we speak with local resident and mountain bike and gravel bike national champion, Keegan Swenson. He'll talk about his banner year of racing and what makes him go so fast. Then professor of philosophy at Wellesley College, Helena DeBrez, in her study of twins, which involves her being one, an identical twin, that is, she talks about how the philosophy of twins can tell us more broadly about being human. It's an interesting conversation. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm David Windsor. Park City and the Wasatch Back are known for the love of mountain biking, and skilled bikers pedal all over the Wasatch Back. So it's really a big deal to say that the greatest cyclist to come out of those mountains is our next guest, Keegan Swenson, born and raised in Park City and remains a Wasatch Back resident. He's been on the podium repeatedly in the national and international mountain bike and gravel bike racing scene with 2023 most likely his banner year. He joins us now to talk about what makes him go so fast. Keegan, welcome to The Mountain Life. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, there are a million different places that I could start, but let's start with your most recent culmination of this incredible year you've had. The top honors at this Lifetime Grand Prix, which is made up of seven different races. Can you just give us a quick overview of the races and what it entails? Yeah, so it's a mix of uh, mountain bike racing and gravel racing. Uh, the season starts with the Grand Prix. It starts down in California at the Sea Otter Classic, which has been kind of a long time mountain bike race, kind of one of the longer standing ones here in the U.S. Uh, after that, there's uh, Unbound Gravel and then Crush with a Tusher, which is a gravel race here in Utah, down in Beaver. And then so after that, there's Leadville, Leadville 100, and then Schwamigan which is a mountain bike race on the Berkey Trail out in uh, Wisconsin. And then the RAD, which is a new event in Trinidad, Colorado. That's a gravel race. And then uh, Big Sugar, which is the final Grand Prix event in uh, Bentonville, Arkansas. Wow. And so at some point in your career, you've won or at least been on the podium of all these. But the, the distinguishing thing about this year is that you won pretty much all of these. I think you ended up in the final race in fourth place, but overall you were the point leader. You took the whole thing. I think the story goes a little bit deeper on just how much you dominated. For example, in the Leadville 100 race, which is a race that's been around forever, you cross the finish line and it's like you have a snack, you talk to the media, you do all this stuff before the second place rider even crosses the finish line. Talk to us about that record that you shattered. Yeah, that one was, that was kind of a big, a big project this year for me. Uh, um, after Unbound, which was kind of the first big goal for the year, we you know kind of had everything set on breaking the record at Leadville. Uh, my mechanic, Myra, and I spent you know a few weeks here in Heber, like messing with different bike setups, tires, equipment, all that. So yeah, it was kind of a big, you know. And then Sophia did the stage race there, uh, so I went and just hung out and trained and pre-rode the course, and she did the stage race, which essentially is also a pre-ride. The stage race is like the same led the 100 race course, but broken up into three different days. So I went up for that. It was only some time up at like the high elevation and yeah, you know, made what I thought was the perfect bike and then came up with the plan with my coach and whatnot. So yeah, that one was, you know, a big effort and 
it was nice to be able to, to get it done and break the record by enough that hopefully it hangs around for a little while. <laughs> Love that. Keegan, I've been around sports my whole life, and there always seems to be like a, a go-to fundamental you try to focus on to simplify how you know what you need to do in those pressure situations or when things aren't necessarily going your way. Like if you're in swimming, you know, keep your hips high, skiing moguls, keep your hands out in front, golf, balance on both feet. So what are those things that you try to focus on in those really big moments to keep it simple? Yeah, it's funny. I think, I mean, for Leadville, for example, I had, I mean, I had like the, you know, time splits, whatever on my top tube. And for a while I was a little bit behind where I, where I really wanted to be. And I just focused on, you know, on the flats. I was like, okay, I just spin out the the biggest gear on the bike. Cause then you'd be going as fast to be going faster than anyone else could go. Uh, so it was like simple things like that. Like just keep the cadence, you know, at a certain speed and just focus on and turn the pedals over. So I think on a bike, it's relatively simple sometimes because you just get that guy, just got to turn my legs, make him make, him make circles, <laughs> which was uh, something I got uh, pretty good at when I did the 24 hours of old Pueblo solo a couple years ago. I mean, I was like, you just still smoke. You just have to keep making, making the legs turn circles. And sometimes that's uh, all you have to do. <laughs> Sometimes you all you have to do, but I would imagine in these long races that you you hit a point where you're you're dehydrated or you, your body starts yeah. to cramp, um, and then your mind starts to kick in. You know, and your mind starts telling you like, "Why are you here? Like, what are you doing? Like, this is stupid. We should." Do you ever hit those moments in those races? Is that my guess? My question is: Is that the inevitable that you'll hit that moment, or have you ever had a flawless race where your mind doesn't tr try to trick you out of quitting or whatever it is? I think. A race like Leadville, where I knew I was off the front and had a pretty substantial gap. It was more like, I guess, a different mindset there. But there's definitely times when you are, when you get negative and you start thinking, like, wondering why you're doing this. Maybe I should just just quit and do something else because this job sucks. Uh, you know, but then you like can snap out of it and realize that you're you're doing it because you love it and you're having a good time. So just kind of trying to find the balance there, I guess. But uh, yeah, not definitely not always easy and not always fun. <laughs> <laughs> If you're just joining us on the Mountain Life, we're having a conversation with mountain bike and gravel bike champion Keegan Swenson, also a local resident, uh, newly a Midway resident, as we understand. Grew up here in Park City. And and Keegan, you know, I, I've known you since you were a little kid, and you were really a pretty good ski racer as well. And I'm wondering at what point and what were those things that you discovered about yourself or your body or whatever it was to focus then on mountain bike racing. And, you know, I see now you're 5'10", you weigh 145. You are lean and lithe and not the ski racer sort of body anymore. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I like ski racing as well. But for me, I always, I found that I preferred riding and racing my bike. And I also felt, felt that I was a bit better suited to it, towards it. And I think for ski racing, like you mentioned, I was always a little on the small side and at a certain point, like, yeah, I was getting pretty decent at ski racing and better at racing bikes. And like, they start to like cross paths and you start like having to go to ski camps in the summer down in Chile or New Zealand or whatever. And then in the winter, you have to go ride your bike somewhere warm. They start like, you know, conflicting pretty heavily. So you kind of had at a certain point, I had to make a decision of which one I wanted to pursue and do. And I felt like I was better at bike racing and preferred it. So that's the, uh, the route we went. Yeah. Well, since you've been a pro and it's been, you know, a while now, I'm wondering how things like fuel and recovery have changed and become way more data-driven and scientific for you. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's been like an ever-evolving 
piece like you're always trying to look, look for the next edge you know um so i've started working with a nutritionist uh, i've been working with the same guy now for about probably five or six years um so that's been a big big help you know just dialing in nutrition and then the last few years on the bike i think everyone's kind of started taking in more calories you know before it was like oh you just have like you know your one gel an hour and it's a water or whatever and you're good but now we're we're racing at like probably over four or five hundred calories an hour of just straight carbohydrates so there's like small things like that that everyone's kind of picked up on it i mean everyone's getting faster if you don't then you end up kind of falling behind in some ways but yeah it's just like dialing in all those small things and making sure you're staying on top of nutrition and recovery and you know have a good strength program and stretching and you know massage and all that so it's definitely a combination of all of them i think anyone who loves doing these athletic pursuits the one of the biggest things is recovery i'm sure your recovery is going to be a lot different than david's recovery and my recovery what are the what are your top tips for recovery i mean the biggest thing is sleep you know that's like i feel like most everyone knows that but it's also like this seems like it's still the hardest one for people to really execute and do well and even though it's relatively simple you just have to go to bed and sleep as long as you can uh yeah for me that's that's big you know, i really try and focus on you know, trying getting at least eight to ten hours of sleep every night. Um, try and have eight somewhat of a regular, ten. regular. That's impressive. Routine. So sometimes more. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, after a big training block, you know, after I do like a big, big week, I can sometimes I can get eleven or twelve. But yeah, you can go back to what you were saying. Where you know, when when you're in those moments, how it sucks, and and you just have to go back that you're doing this because you love it. I would imagine of all the sports, like endurance racing as a whole would be like the hardest to get back in the saddle, no pun intended, where if you're having a tough day and the weather's bad or you're just not feeling it, you had a fight with your partner the night before and you just don't want to get up and train because, yeah, it's hours on a bike or in the pool or whatever it is. What is it about biking that that brings you back to, to that love? Is it is it being out in the nature? Is it the endurance high? What is it about the sport of biking that just keeps you going through those tough days? I, mean, I think when things get bad, sometimes, you know, I like to think like, sometimes I feel like I, you'd look back and I go, you'd regret not finishing it or not doing it, you know, like back to Oak Pueblo at a certain point where I was like, I don't know why, like no one, no one else cares if I do this many laps, like, why don't I just stop? I don't have to keep doing this anymore. But then you look back, I go, I would have been really bummed if I had, if I quit. And then, you know, on hard training days, if it's cold and rainy and just kind of a bummer day, then, then I just have to realize that. It's like, well, this is better than any other job I could do. And even though it kind of sucks, I like to do it for a few hours and it's only raining a little bit. So it's, you know, it's not so bad. So I guess that's kind of what I have to put in perspective. Like I'd rather be riding my bike in the rain outside than sitting at a desk. So I think, you know, at the end, it's, it's not so bad. That's a great perspective to have for yeah. sure. So you talked about how you crushed one of your goals this year was the big goal for the year. And so going into like a new season at the end of the season, how are you getting your mind right? Are you writing down these goals? Are you visualizing these goals? Are you set? And then when you're training, you're constantly thinking about it. What is your mindset and the visualization throughout the season and preseason to get you ready for those goals? Yeah. I mean, this year, like winning unbound 200 was kind of the first big goal. And then Leadville uh, and then gravel worlds was kind of the last. And then like, you gotta have them have them spread out enough that they're actually achievable. You can't, you know, stack a bunch of big goals back together. Otherwise, you'd be just kind of trying to buy off one you can chew. For me, um, so yeah, I think. I mean, right now, I haven't really started worrying about next year. Just kind of hang out and decompress a bit from this year, and then start worrying about all that stuff like late November, early December. Start figuring out what I want to do next year and um, kind of what I want to do once I start training again. You have more time to think too. <laughs> uh, that's what I do most of my thinking about that kind of stuff. So I'm not just riding the bike. So 
yeah, still have another month or so before we start nailing down next year's plans. But so gravel riding has become really popular in I don't know the last seems to me like eight years or so, and mm-hmm. and you have been racing in the gravel scene for a while. I don't know five years or so maybe. Yeah, since 2020 actually, I guess was the kind of first. I did Crusher the Tusher before that, but that was about it. Right. Just wondering about, you know, all these different disciplines, because you go, I've I've noticed as when you were younger, the distances were shorter. And as you've gotten a little bit older, you're 29 now, you can do these long endurance events. Wondering how, how the body changes to be able to allow that and then to allow, you know, the gravel races, obviously 200 miles is very much an endurance event. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, for a while, I only raced pretty much only race cross country Olympic XCO as it's called. And that's the races are only like 75 to 90 minutes long. Um, and then here and there I'd race, you know, the occasion like whiskey 50 was three hours. That was kind of the top, you know, most, the longest I'd ever race. And then I think I did, when I did the white rim, I went and set the white rim FKT in 2019, 2020, whenever I did that, um, I kind of, that was, you know, five and a half hours or so and realized that I really enjoyed like, pushing and going hard for a long time. Um, and that I was quite good at it. I feel like I was better suited towards that than I was at, you know, the shorter XEO stuff. So I still was racing XEO, but I started doing some more longer events. And then I kind of just fell into place, you know, with COVID, there wasn't much going on. So I ended up doing like the Everest record over on Pine Canyon and started doing more long, long events. And, um, yeah, I think gravel racing kind of became a bigger, bigger deal over here. And that's like where the kind of industry was going. And, uh, the Lifetime Grand Prix got announced, and the majority of that is more the, most of those events are quite long, except for Schwalmigan and Sea Otter. Uh, even Sea Otter, I guess, is like almost three hours. So, yeah, most of the events now are just longer. That's kind of the way it's it's gotten, and it's it works out for me because I, I definitely prefer longer races. Feels like you get to see some more cool terrain, you get to you know cover more ground, and uh, I just prefer the the longer distance. So, yeah, it's been it's been fun. Well, one thing we failed to mention, you mentioned before, um, Sophia, who is your girlfriend, life partner, and uh, she also was the Grand Prix champion. The, it's the the world's, you know, power couple of the mountain bike and gravel bike world. So congrats to her as well. And we would, we'll, we'll get her on the show at some point to talk about the specifics of a female athlete and competing at her level and Olympic level. And this kind of all ties into the, the endurance thing. Like I've always loved endurance events. I've said it's because I have this extra layer of body fat and that's you know I, I can just feed off the fat but you are there is not a a minute amount of fat on your body and you talked about the four to five hundred calories I'm just wondering yeah like how does that all figure in I mean is it easy for you to bonk is it easy for you to if you're not getting that caloric intake in the right way what happens to that body that's like a smokestack yeah I mean I think I mean, even though I don't have a ton of fat, I mean, there's still, you know, even at, you know, five, 6% body fat, whatever it is, there's still quite a bit of fat to burn. Um, and I think my body just gets, it's good and efficient at burning fat, um, as well as like that transition from fat to carbohydrate. I don't quite know all the specifics, you know, but I do know that like that and like racing altitude, like a Leadville or also like kind of, it's kind of similar, just a good aerobic motor, I guess, is what it comes down to. I'm um, really good at going like kind of hard for a long time. <laughs> But like better at that than going like, like you know that hard sprint kind of pace that you do for like a 30 minute or 
like hour long race, I guess. So. Keegan, I did the big mountain ski tour for quite a while. And even though the sport was growing as an interest with the athletes, the exposure to like the mainstream public still isn't there. It's just, it's really hard to get people on board to fully mm -hmm. understand the sport. And right. because of it, I think that there's been some struggle with funding and sponsors and stuff like that. What are you finding in, in your sport? Are, is it growing with athletes and not necessarily the, the main public? And how is it working with sponsorships and funding these events? So I think that's kind of why gravel racing has really gotten so popular the last five years or so is that most of the gravel events we're racing uh, with the amateurs. So like why others start at the same time and everyone's together, just a mass start race, which is kind of a point of contention with the women. So now the women are starting to have, by next year, there'll be more races with their own start. Um, Cause it's definitely a challenge having them mixed in. Uh, but anyway, so some races will have our own start. Some races you're racing with the amateurs. Either way, you're racing on the same course, the same weekend, um, doing the same event. And then there's like a big expo set up and there's always like, uh, like there'll be like ride with the pros or whatever the days before with different sponsors or the event will put one on. So like, you know, every now and then I'll do a ride and there'll be you know, a bunch of people come out and we'll do, do an hour long ride or whatever. So there's more like interaction, I think. Um, and that's why it's gained so much popularity. Uh, like it's just easy for it. It's easy access. Like any, almost anyone who can ride a bike can ride a gravel bike. Whereas, uh, like mountain bike racing, it takes a lot more skill. Uh, so I think it's a little less, that's why it's a little less popular. And like, if you can race, if you ride a mountain bike, you can go ride a gravel bike. And if you can ride road, then you can also do gravel. So I think it's, it's a nice, like easy medium and it kind of combines the two worlds. And it's also, I mean, like while road racing has had a hard time in the amateur level, I think is like, it's, it's expensive and it's hard to close roads and it's a little more dangerous because you're riding in that, that tight bunch. I think it's people are a little more drawn to gravel. Um, so yeah, I think that's a big reason just having all the interaction with the fans and um, amateurs racing and like everyone's out there doing the same thing. So uh, I think that's why it's a bit different than, than the ski side. Um, Cause I've yeah. also noticed that like skiing, it's just hard to like, I think people have a hard time like relating with it. Whereas if they're doing that exact thing, they, they can understand it more and they like they're riding the same equipment for the most part that we are. And, uh, it's like, it's on a sponsor level. It's like, Oh, well, Keegan went unbound on the Santa Cruz stigmata. And then, you know, people go, like, Oh, that's, it must be a good gravel bike. And they can go do it. They can do unbound where they do the 200, they can do the 100 or they can do the 50. So there's like shorter and easier rides, but they're still doing the same event and they're going to be, be around. So. That's, that's a great explanation. I never thought about the, the incorporation of, uh, the public into the event to, it's kind of like a pro-am in a golf tournament or something but right. so i know you, you you talked about a little bit about the tour at the very beginning but i don't know anything about the bike tour so if you could educate me and the listener about how the tour is set up so like what are the big events that carry the most weight throughout the season and then if i'm just to hop in and follow a rider what's the overall goal that the riders are looking to achieve at the beginning of the year um so there's a few different series out there i mean the big one that I mentioned earlier, the Lifetime Grand Prix is the biggest series right now in the U.S., um, if not one of the bigger series, like, in the world for off-road racing. Um, like, it has, a, you know, mix of mountain bike racing and gravel racing. So, it starts with Sea Otter Classic, finishes in Arkansas in the, in the end of the year. There's seven races, and they take the best five. So, you can skip two of them, or you can, like, have two throwout races or whatever. Um, and that includes, like, Unbound and Leadville, kind of all the biggest races in the U.S. anyway. So, it makes sense. And is it points-driven based on results? Yeah, so it's points. Um, I can't remember exactly the point structure, but basically the yeah, it's, it's a very tight point structure. So you know, first place down to and the points go like 
30 deep or whatever. And then the top 10 are the ones who get paid at the end of the year. Uh, and the overall, so like first place is 25,000 and 10, that was down to six, 6,000, I think. Um, and outside that, and there's no money. So it's, uh, yeah, you have to be in the top 10. And then, um, anyway, that's, so there's that series and there's Belgian waffle ride, which is, has another, it's not quite as big. Uh, like they don't have quite the same size of the events, but they do have like Belgian waffle ride, California, which is big. And they have Cedar city. They have kind of their own smaller series. It also has an overall. And then there's also various mountain bike races and whatnot. So it's kind of hard to commit to all of them. It's kind of best to pick a, pick one series you want to focus on and then, um, you know, throw, throw in some others, but lifetime, the grand prix is the biggest one right now. Um, they actually do a pretty cool series on it. So last year you guys, you know, check it out. It's called call of a lifetime. Um, and there's like, they follow along every race and there's like interviews kind of like the, the, the formula one style, uh, like documentary and there'll be another one for this year um it's pretty cool they have helicopters and drones and uh, on what channel cycles uh i think it's all on youtube just call oh. it a lifetime yeah so you also went last month i believe it was to italy for the world gravel championships um and this is a uci event you placed fifth and you started either in the middle of the pack or the back of the pack. Why did they line you up that way? And how did that change your outcome, you think? Uh, I mean, I got to the front pretty quick. I honestly don't think it was a huge factor. I mean, there's definitely a little little wasted energy, um, but hard to say whether that was, you know, worth one place or two places or whatever. Um, in the end, you know, it was, didn't take a whole lot of effort to get up there. But yeah, there being in the pack, like the way they, at the UCI Worlds, they, they did the, the staging based off, like UCI points with a mix of like gravel UCI points, which are brand new. There's only a few races that have those points. And then they took like a certain percent of mountain bike points and road points. So it was like, I had a little bit of mountain bike points because I raced Cape Epic. And then I also did the Soldier Hollow XCO, which <laughs> I was really glad I did because I almost didn't race it because I just was, got back to Unbound. I was like, I don't really want to, but it's a home race. I should go do it. So anyway, I did that. And luckily I was able to use some of those points. And so I had like a, I think I was 90th call up, which isn't horrible out of 250 racers. Uh, so it's also just a really big field. So at least I was in the middle and not in the very back. It makes it a little bit easier to, to weasel through and get to the front. But yeah, good. Well, with those wearable devices, the whoop, I know it tells you like how recovered you are in terms of sleep. Do you wear one of those? So do you know, or do you just at this point, you just read your body? I mean, I wore the, the Garmin watch for a while. Um, I've used a few various devices, but I've kind of found I just prefer to not have anything telling me like how I'm yeah. sleeping. I just feel like in the end, I, I know if I'm sleeping good or bad, I guess. And I don't like those things telling me like, oh, you're ready to train today. You're not ready to train. So I'm going to train whether I'm ready or not. So I'd rather just not know if it tells me <laughs> that makes sense. If it tells you to go back to bed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If so you're not ready, like, well, I'm doing it anyway. So that is what yeah. it is. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Keegan Swenson, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I've been chasing you down for a while now and, um, following you on Instagram. It's really fun. You have a really robust social media. And by the way, do you do your own social media or do you have someone that does it for you? Cause that's gotta be, a, yeah, you do your own. Yeah. It's gotta be yeah, a job in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. No, it it's good. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And it really keeps you in touch with your fans too. You know, people asking you weird questions like, yeah, <laughs> what did you eat? Or why did you run that tire? Why do you wax your chain? It's, it's all pretty, it's, it's pretty fun stuff. If you're into biking. <laughs> yeah. I try, I try and keep it, uh, you know, fairly updated. So 
yeah. glad I do all right. So it's definitely yeah, a, you do. a struggle for me. <laughs> no, you do a great job. And it's, you know, it is kind of weird that that's what you have to do these days, even if you're an athlete, um, not yeah. just a random influencer, is that you have to, you have to be an influencer. It's what your sponsors probably really need you to do, right? Yeah, big part of the job now, you know, yeah. also the yeah. uh, social media side. Exactly. Well, Keegan Swenson, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on The Mountain Life. Yeah, thank you for having me. Keegan Swenson. And, you know, Keegan mentions the YouTube, uh, it's a mini-series about this Lifetime Grand Prix series. Uh, It's called Call of a Lifetime. Look it up on YouTube. It does take a Formula One sort of approach And it tells a great story of the Lifetime Grand Prix. It focuses on all of the racers, the top racers, both men and women. If you're into mountain biking and gravel biking, you will love it. Or even if you're not into it. I wasn't into Formula One until I watched that, uh, was it Netflix miniseries? Really excellent storytelling. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm David Windsor. Our next guest, Helena DeBress, is a professor of philosophy at Wellesley College. She's also an identical twin. Helena applies her study of philosophy to being a twin and says that all the questions that we ask of twins, are you the evil twin? Can you read each other's minds? Do you ever switch partners? (laughs) These all give insights into the limits of personhood, consciousness, love, freedom, and justice. How interesting. She joins us now to discuss her new book, How to Be Multiple. Helena, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here. Well, this is a departure for you, it feels like, in seeing some of your previous works, things like why we should care about global poverty and things like that. But it's very pertinent to your life because you are an identical twin. Have you ever written on it before? No. Well, I wrote one short piece, which in a way was the kind of beginning of this project. Um, but I hadn't spent much time at all thinking about the connection between my life as a twin and my job as a philosophy professor until maybe like three years ago, I think it is now. And as soon as I started thinking about it, all these uh, interesting connections came up for me. Uh, so I wanted to explore them in a, in a longer format. So the book was born. Mm. Well, let's establish something at the get-go here. I I actually spoke with my son's girlfriend, who is a twin, but she's fraternal twin, not identical twin. And she was telling me all the reasons why it would be so much different to be an identical twin. So establish for us, you're not a biology professor, but the difference between identical and fraternal. Yeah, sure. In a way, it's a misleading terminology. When I tell people I'm an identical twin and then they meet my twin, they often say, well, well, you look different. You're not exactly the same. Um, So it's a bit misleading. I prefer the term single egg versus different egg because that's the key biological distinction. Identical twins began as one single fertilized egg that splits in half uh, a little later, whereas uh, non-identical or fraternal twins begin as two distinct eggs. Uh, So they have the same degree of genetic differences normal siblings do, whereas identical twins are genetically identical. Uh, Helena, 
so some of these questions that people are asking, like, do you read other mind? Do you read each other's minds? How can you tell each other apart? Like, these are questions that I've never e even thought of asking. <laughs> and I, I know a lot of identical twins. And so I'm just curious, what do you think people's fascinations are with these silly questions? It's a great, it's a great question. I think, you know, any, any identical twin in particular, because I think the focus is often on the identical kind, well, I've heard these twins, these, these questions rather throughout their lives. Um, we just get them all the time. People are also very interested in, you know, which of you was born first. They're obsessed with that question. And often the difference is about two minutes. So it's hard to see why it's so significant. Um, but yeah, the more existential questions that I get into in the book, uh, come up in everyday life all the time. So people yeah, will often ask if in some way twins have a sort of mystical connection. Um, again, if they can read each other's minds, but also there's a sense that they sort of share a self um, beyond that. Uh, so twins are often give, given the same present, you know, on a birthday or at Christmas and those sort of more everyday ways. But also people tend to think that in some way twins are less than uh, two people. They're somehow merged. Um, and many stories, you don't hear people in everyday life saying that directly, but many stories about twins in novels or films or in popular culture imply in some way that twins are merged. Uh, so it's an interesting trend. And, and I used to think that that particular point was obviously false. Like clearly my twin and I are different people. But when I was working on the book, I came to came around to some version of it actually. Two humans have merged to one. What a concept. <laughs> so it, it's kind of like being a mini celebrity in a sense, because I'm sure athletes and celebrities get the same questions over and over and over, and you're just repeating the same answer. So obviously you, you're you both, you're identical in, in look, but you're, you're two different human beings. You have two different personalities. So in your case, what have you and your twin have similar, and what are the differences between the two of you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I've always been presented as the quiet ones with the introvert, um, and my twin has been the extrovert. She's more assertive and kind of dramatic and sociable than I am. And I think that points to this interesting uh, general habit that we have in relation to twins of kind of uh, putting them in two separate camps, right? Sort of binarizing them, if you like. So often one twin is the good twin, one's the evil twin, you know, one's the sporty one and one's the nerd. Uh, we have this tendency, and it's the opposite one from the one I was just talking about. On the one hand, we kind of homogenize twins, treat them as the same. On the other hand, we tend to, you know, really sharply distinguish between them. Um, and I think it's really an interesting way to think about uh, about how humans tend to split people into distinct camps across the board. So twins are often used as symbols for other binaries in life. Um, it's a way to think about those kinds of differences. Um, so I think any twin, if you come across, could could talk about whether they were, you know, the funny one or the serious one. Um, and there's a big question about whether that really is what we are or whether it's a kind of story or narrative we've been told about ourselves. If you're just joining us on The Mountain Life, we're having a conversation with philosophy professor and identical twin, Helena DeBress. Her new book is called How to Be Multiple. And it is such a good symbol of what we try to do to everyone all the time, especially if you look at that question of introversion and extroversion, we're always put in that box. Oh, I'm an introvert, so I can't X, Y, Z, or I'm an extrovert, so I'm always going to do this. Right. And it was very freeing when, you know, 
when I had to read this somewhere that sometimes you know, we might be extroverts in our day job and then we go home and we have to be complete introverts. Right. So <laughs> why, why do we want to put people in boxes? I mean, and this is this is the existential question that you, that you're exploring in the book, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's clear that binary thinking can be really cramping and reductive. Like you're saying, you know, each of us contains multitudes. That's sort of the idea behind the book, referring to Walt Whitman. Um, so why would we try and um, restrict ourselves to one of these dimensions? Um, but one thing I try to do in the book is talk about the, the benefits of binary thinking. Obviously, it's bad in lots of ways. I don't want to defend it. Um, but I think once we understand what roles it plays in people's lives, we've got more of an ability to work against it. Like, What's it doing for us? Why do we treat people in these ways? And twins are a very vivid instance of that habit. So I think they're a helpful lens for thinking about what might be good about it as well as what's bad. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also answers so many questions about nature versus nurture. I think that's that will forever be the biggest question in science or behavioral study. Um, <clears throat> as I mentioned, I spoke with my son's girlfriend yesterday, who's a twin, and she was saying the biggest thing is that people know that you were born on this exact day and you were raised in the same way by your parents and in your families, and yet there are all these comparisons that are drawn because, you know, you graduated from high school the same day, presumably, you know, you went to college at the same time. And so it becomes this, this need to compare about, you know, maybe the nature nurture question. I, I don't, I don't yeah. know. No, absolutely. Um, it's people are obviously very interested in this question across the board and twins have been used uh, in science to try and tease out the relative impact of uh, genetics and the environment you know, on, on human life. Uh, so they're used as a kind of scientific experiment, but I think you can also use them kind of philosophically um, as an experiment too. This, when it comes to identical twins in particular, it's like we're almost a, a natural scientific experiment, right? We start as the same thing, right? We are, we're an egg that's that splits in two. So we start at the very same point with the same materials. We have the same genes. And then you kind of set us off in life and we do diverge. We don't diverge as dramatically as, you know, singletons do, but we end up having different lives. And so the question becomes, you know, to what extent um, are our outcomes, you know, determined by our genes and determined by, um, by other factors. Um, I think people often are a bit freaked out when they think about twins um, and in relation to free will. They start thinking, oh my goodness, if um, if genes are determining so much of my life, do I have any freedom at all? Um, and in the book, I talk about how twins have a different attitude to that question, I think. Um, I think twins tend not to be quite so worried about it as non-twins are, which is interesting. As far as like the nature versus nurture, I mean, we all have, whether you have your own kids of your own or, uh, you know, friends or your nieces and nephews, they grow up in the same household, but they're completely different people. They have completely different personalities. So sometimes the nurture isn't always part of it because they're just a different, that one's more stubborn and one's more funny. And is there any scientific evidence that this differs with twins or is it just ac across the board, we're all just as a human being, just different individuals. 
Well, there's those really, I think the cases of twins separated at birth who get reunited later are really uh, interesting. So you'll have, there's these famous gym twins that were studied um, in this um, program in Minnesota in the 1980s and 90s, um, I think. Uh, so they were separated at birth, they're identical, um, and they ended up having very, very similar lives, even though they'd never met each other. They reunited, I think, around the age of 40, they both married a woman called Linda and then a woman called Betty. They both named their dog the same thing. They called it Toy. They named their son James Allen. Um, and <laughs> they did the same things on weekends. They went to the same beach in Florida for vacations, had exactly the same personality test results, um, the same blood pressure. They were exactly 180 pounds. You know, it was just a really creepy level of similarity. Um, so I think that's what really freaks people out. They think, well, clearly it's not the environment that's pushing people, that those two in that direction, um, because they didn't have the same environment. It's their genes. So how can any of us really act freely if everything about us is determined by our genes? But yeah, as I said before, I feel like twins, identical twins are used to seeing the impact of their genes on their lives from the very beginning. So in a way, we, you know, I don't think that we're as troubled by it. We see the effects of um, our genetic inheritance alongside the differences we have. So in a way, I think we're kind of um, a little more immune to the crisis that you might have <laughs> if you're looking at it from the outside. I don't think that um, it's as troubling um, as many people think it is. Um, I also think part of the reason people get so concerned about free will in particular is they want to feel they're the person directing their life, right? They want to think they're in control of their choices and decisions. Um, so in a way, they want to be the creator of themselves. They don't want outside forces doing it. Um, but I think if you're a twin, you're used to having someone in your life who's who's affecting you, interacting with you very closely um, from the beginning. And you're less afraid of seeing yourself as being partly formed by the influence of other people. Absolutely. I, I, that The story of the Jim twins reminded me of uh, the famous tennis brothers. I think it's the Bryan brothers. And yeah, they do the, they live, they basically live together. They're, you know, they have these $20 million homes or whatever, and they, they're roommates and they're the most <laughs> accomplished tennis players in the world. So yeah, there are other stories of it. You, I feel so out of touch with pop culture, if you will, but so you interrogate on a, a, a bigger stage, like the broader fascination we have with twins and their portrayal in pop culture, but in, in, educate me a little bit because I'm not aware of this. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, twins are a really kind of useful device for thinking about um, and kind of having fun with uh, human questions. So you often see them in movies or in films, raising questions of personal identity in a fun way, um, or raising questions about, um, about love, what the best kind of loving relationship is, or these questions about freedom. So they come, I think anyone can, can sort of think of uh, movies or or books that twins have appeared in, TV shows. There was just that Dead Ringers show with Rachel Weiss in it on Amazon Prime, um, which is a very creepy horror show. Twins are often in horror shows. Um, many of us grew up watching 
either version of the parent trap. So there was the Haley Mills version in 1961 and the Lindsay Lowen version um, <laughs> later on. Um, so that's a, and then it was the Sweet Valley Twins was a kind of, uh, you know, YA adult series when I was growing up, Elizabeth and Jessica Wakefield uh, growing up in California. Anyway, there's, it's a bunch of different instances out there. Um, and yeah, I think that, um, that, people find twins interesting because they're rare and kind of cute and just fun to play with. But in the background, there are these deeper questions twins are raising that are giving a little more heft to the story um, and explain some of that fascination too. Well, what is one of those questions that you and your identical twin, Julia, have raised that other people haven't? Um. Yeah, in our own lives, huh? I him that's a good question. Um, I don't know if there's anything distinct about our particular relationship. One thing that I found interesting um, when working on the book is that I would think about, oh, here's an interesting question about twinship. And I would immediately think of all these personal instances in my own life that related to it. So it was more a sense of recognition, I would say. Um, going back to the question of whether or not twins are a single person um, mm -hmm. in some sense there was this very funny thing that happened a couple of years ago when i was visiting my sister julia in new zealand we live in very different countries now very far away um we were working at a library on projects together um, we had very tight deadlines we we're trying to save time and i heard myself saying despite myself i'm going to go to the bathroom do you want me to go for you too so there was a sense in which I thought somehow I could go to the bathroom for my sister. And this is something I would never say to anyone else. And it indicated that sense that somehow, not at an intellectual level, but somewhere deeper, I somehow think that my body is, is merged with hers. It's mm. very odd. And I obviously don't really think that's true, but I wanted to spend time in the book thinking about other ways in which there might be some sense of shared personhood in a non-physical way. Mm, yeah. Well, and then that leads me into the question of, you know, do you feel, well, the question that, that many people pose to you is, can you read each other's minds? And that's, that's kind of a simplistic version of probably the, the broader question, which is really, truly, how connected are you on a soul level? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think there is, in a way, this is a bit disappointing. I think people would love it if twins could communicate with ESP. I don't think that that does happen. Um, when it looks like it's happening, I think often it's really just an indication that twins know each other so well, right? So they know a lot of things about each other. So they're not really reading each other's minds. But I do think there's a different way in which twins can share a mind. Um, so there was a paper that came out in philosophy um, about 20 years ago called The Extended Mind, which talked about the way that anyone, you know, non-twins too, can use objects outside their own skull as a kind of extension of their own thinking. So for instance, you could think about your phone. Uh, if your life is really deeply dependent on your phone, the things that you do on it, whether you're using your calculator or Googling, can be seen as you using your mind via uh, an object outside your skull. Um, so it's sort of, a, you know, in some ways an intuitive idea, in some ways like a very weird idea. Um, but I think if you can, in some sense, have your mind extend to an inanimate object, why can't you also have it extend to another person? And there are many ways that twins rely on each other's minds. Um, 
in remembering their past or in sort of thinking jointly that I think, you know, it's just not exactly like sharing a mind, but it's it's close to it. Uh, so that's one way uh, where I think that there is an aspect of personhood that can be joint for twins and also for other close couples. So what were those conversations between you and your sister? I'm sure as you were writing this book, you had a lot of conversations about the differences between you two and the similarities and how your life has differed from a, a rant, uh, just a brother and sister sibling that aren't twins. So walk us through some of the conversations that were, I guess, more so exciting and new to you and your sister in writing this book. Yeah, we did have a lot of uh, conversations. In a way, it's a collaborative project, which is a very twin-like thing. Uh, we've always collaborated on things together since we were young. I was always the writer. She was the illustrator when we were growing up. I wrote a novel. She drew pictures. So this, she's done illustrations for this book. Um, and she also talked to me right the way through the writing of it. She would often send me these very long voice memos. So because <laughs> we're in different time zones. Um, so yeah, um, I, one thing that was really helpful talking to my sister is that she's a sociolinguist. So her research, we're both professors, her research is on the way that social minorities are talked about um, in the culture. Um, so she had some really interesting theoretical insights as well as um, insights from her own experience. Twins aren't you know, a social minority in the sense of being some kind of oppressed group. But they're a minority, right? Numerically, they're kind of odd. We're a little bit freakish. Uh, so some of the ways that we talk about other minority groups extend to twins in minor uh, ways that I think are illuminating. Uh, so she partly gave me a lot of theoretical insight. She also just remembers things much better than I do. That's one difference. So I'd be like, oh, well, we had that interaction in elementary school. I can't remember. And she remembers it in vivid detail. So <laughs> she was very useful. I should really be giving her half of the half of the, the royalties for the book. <laughs> we can cut that part out of the interview. <laughs> so yeah, what a great little, uh, you know, opportunity for the two of you just to kind of grow and learn more about the things that you have forgotten on back on the subject of the the silly questions that people are asking you on a daily basis which it gets old it reminded me that i i saw something on the internet and it, some a guy had asked a gentleman how if he how tall he was and he handed him a business card and the business card said yes i'm six eight yes i know that's really tall um, no, I don't play basketball. The weather's fine up here, and I'm used to seeing the top of your head. And so have you ever thought about offloading some some pre-rehearsed questions or answers to people's questions? Oh, my goodness. I never have, and I wish I had. I would have saved myself so much time over the past 40 years if I had done that. I love it. It's it's funny. There's also, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is the way there's a parallel between the ways that uh, people treat twins and the ways that people treat women, right? So when women, especially, you know, hot young women walking down the street will often attract comments from guys, right? Uh, so they're kind of objectified while they're walking down the street. Uh, that happens to identical twins too. It's not usually like sexualized when the twins are small, but um, you'll be asked all these questions or strangers will try and compare different parts of your face. Um, or if you're a mother of twins, there will often be these really invasive questions like, you know, did you have a C-section? You know, are you breastfeeding them? You know, are they, I don't know, questions about, I guess, non-identical versus fraternal, but the sort of questions you wouldn't ask your standard mother in public. Um, so there's a strange sense in which twins are like celebrities, kind of public property, 
when they're small and very identical. Um, mm. So another that's another angle, I think, for getting to a philosophical question about, you know, if this is objectifying in some sense, like what what's troubling about it? It's not as troubling as the case of of women. So what is it about objectification that bothers us? Should we be concerned about it and why? Mm. Yeah. And then on the other hand, being public property uh, or feeling like there's some bit of that in being identical twins, you may not always want that. It's like it's like the pregnant woman who has people, strangers touching her stomach. Right. You know, is it is that okay? Is it not okay? And, you know, is it just not okay sometimes? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And twins have, I think, a bit of an ambivalent um, relationship to this special attention they get. Sometimes we really welcome it. You know, it's nice to feel special. Sometimes twins really capitalize on it commercially. Like there was a restaurant in Manhattan uh, called the Twins Restaurant that was run by a pair of twin restaurateurs. Um, and everything in the restaurant was doubled. They were like twin doorknobs, you know, like twin. <laughs> they, they only employed wait staff who were twins and you had to have your twin with you on the shift. Um, so sometimes twins, you know, sort of, sort of sell themselves in that way. Um, yeah. uh, so the way that women do, sometimes women, you know, self-objectify or use the, themselves in, um, in the market. Um, so some, the one question is, is it, you know, if twins are kind of buying into it or if women are buying into it, does that somehow um, eliminate the problem or should we still be worried about it? Yeah, very yeah. interesting. Well, the book is How to Be Multiple. It's the philosophy of twins. Our guest is professor of philosophy at Wellesley College, Helena DeBrays, along with the illustrations in the book by her identical twin, Julia DeBrays. So a wonderful conversation, Helena. Thank you so much for joining us on The Mountain Life. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It was wonderful. And thanks for tuning in to The Mountain Life. Thanks to our guests, Keegan Swenson and Helena DeBrez. Tune in to The Mountain Life next week. We have a really exciting conversation with Dr. Temple Grandin. She is a very outspoken advocate for the autism community, and she joins us to talk about her book, Visual Thinking, that she adapted into a new book called Different Kinds of Brains. And it's uh, adapted for a younger audience. So very interesting woman that's taking place next Wednesday here on The Mountain Life.